Listen and follow the Left Wing Rugby podcast with me, Will Slattery and Luke Fitzgerald. As far as I can see, I always want to get in the Irish team. And that should be every young player's dream and ambition in this country. And if you're playing in a place where you're not going to get the opportunities in the big games, that they're the ones that get you picked. They are the ones, the Champions Cup games are the ones that get you picked. You need to be playing in a team and starting in a team for those games. It's as simple as that if you want to play in the Irish team. Every week on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This week on Crime World... There was a Republican police from 1920. I mean, the IRA was effectively trying to run an underground government. And actually, there was a crime wave. 1919, 1920, there's a wave of bank robberies, post office robberies, robberies of individuals, robberies of pubs in Dublin and in rural areas as well. So the IRA tried to actually clamp down on that. They, on occasion, solving bank robberies and giving the money back to the banks. Now, I'm Nicola Talent, and you can listen to my podcast, Crime World, wherever you get your podcasts. This is an Irish independent podcast. Today on the Indo-Daily. Paul Hyde and the scandal that has rocked Onboard Panola. The former deputy chair of Onboard Panola, Paul Hyde, has been sentenced to jail for failing to declare conflicts of interest. Judge McNulty said, filing an annual declaration was easy, but it was essential that it was accurate. He said Paul Hyde was guilty of a serious breach of trust and a custodial sentence was warranted. Believed to be the first time a civil servant has been prosecuted for such a crime, Hyde is due to spend two months in prison. The 50-year-old came to the attention of Gardaí after the Minister for Housing, Dara O'Brien, ordered a probe into onboard Planola amid allegations of wrongdoing. Paul Hyde resigned from his position as Deputy Chairman of the Board last year. Why is this controversy so significant? And has it brought the authorities' reputation into question? This planning body can make a decision that can fundamentally change the character and shape of a village, a town, a neighbourhood. So what they do is extraordinarily important. Where they put infrastructure or don't, what kind of housing they allow or don't. I'm Kevin Doyle, and today on the Indo-Daily, I'm joined by the Irish Independence Environment Correspondent, Caroline O'Doherty, to profile the man behind the scandal and ask if in the midst of a housing boom, our planning system is broken. Caroline, the story of Paul Hyde is a fall from grace that we don't often see in public life. But tell me, who exactly is he and where did he come from? Paul Hyde is from Cork City. Um, He's from a well-known family in terms of they've done well in business. Um, They're a sailing family, well-connected to the city. He's 50 years old. He was married. We know he has three children, uh, some still school-going. He's divorced now. He went to school, uh, fee-paying school, Presentation Brothers College, private, all-male, fee-paying school. He went from there to Trinity College, studied architecture. Uh, His education continued. He went to do postgraduates in planning in University College Cork, back to the home city. He subsequently did management uh, courses. He did governance courses. He did, unusually and with a lot of foresight, he did marine spatial planning a postgraduate in in Northern Ireland, uh, which is, you know, an up and coming area in in planning. So he's well educated and was well set up, well connected and seemed well set for, uh, you know, a very uh, productive life. So the fact that he ended up working in Onboard Panola, not really a surprise given the CV that you've put forward there. In fact, it would seem like a perfect fit. Absolutely. You know, he started sort of on sort of these public appointments in 2012. He was appointed then to the Marine Institute 
a Fine Gael appointment, subsequent Fine Gael appointment to the, the board of Onboard Planola, where he was an ordinary member since 2014. And in 2019, he became, he was appointed again to deputy chairman of Onboard Planola. A pretty nice job. It comes with a salary of about 140,000 a year. It starts at about 127,000 for an ordinary member and then, yes, shoots up to 144 for deputy chair. So what would he be doing as deputy chair of Onboard Planola? Well, on board Panola is a really important body. And if you think of it, it deals with the biggest and most contentious planning cases in the country. So it deals with all the very large infrastructural projects, roads, energy projects, power plants, factories that ordinary planning offices in your city or county council don't manage. It also deals with planning disputes. So contentious cases, wherever there's an appeal or an objection or an issue in dispute. So could I end up before on board Panola if I was wanting to build my one-off house down the country for example and uh, people felt it didn't fit in the na- area or, or, or neighbours didn't didn't like the idea you could indeed so they go from very small cases I'm really angry at your extension next door to me to all the way up to giant uh, wastewater data centres or yeah plant as, as is currently being disputed um, in North Dublin to data centres to roadways motorways all of that now, he has been in court in recent days. We heard a lot about his situation. It's it's not as comfortable as perhaps it was a few years ago. We heard some details around his marriage and his home life situation. We did. He's in court for quite technical charges. So this all arose, it started um, to come into public um, arena a year over a year ago in spring of 2022. Uh, there are a number of reports in media about allegations of conflict of interest not just relating to, board, or to, to Paul Hyde, but other members of the board in on board Planola. And what that means is that decisions were made on planning cases where something to do with that case, the place, the property, a business, an investor or a person was in some way connected to someone on the board. And that's a really important issue because there's supposed to be absolute transparency. This is a very small country. And if you've worked in business and if you have political connections and if you have a, a family involved in lots of things in the community, you're going to be connected to people and places and properties and companies. But you have to declare it so that any decision you would make as a board member is up for scrutiny then. Were you under undue influence in making that decision or is it? did you make it on proper planning grounds? So what he was in court for, he was charged with nine breaches of failing to make full declarations of what his interests were. And those interests were failure to declare ownership of seven properties, dwellings, almost all in Cork, apartments and houses and one in in, um, Limerick. And also a plot of land, which is interestingly is called a ransom strip. It's a plot of land. It has no inherent value because it doesn't have planning permission. There's nothing on it. But it is beside potential development land. So it may become very strategically important. It may be needed for access. It may be needed for water pipes or electricity services. So it could become really important to whoever wants to develop the sideland. And then it attracts a value. So there were nine charges. He pleaded to two because there were nine successive years where he, he inaccurately declared what he owned and what his, what his interests were in these pieces of, in, of property. He pleaded guilty to two and the others were then withdrawn on the basis that he would plead guilty and 
as it goes, save a large and long and protracted trial. And the two he pleaded guilty to related to uh, in, in 2015 and 2018 before he became chairperson. He did make excuses as to why he didn't properly declare those. He argued that on the plot of land, that it had no inherent value. Therefore, what could he declare on it in relation to the properties? Like many people, he made investments in properties that went uh, downhill. He said they were in receivership, so he didn't actually own them. The judge did not accept those. His, his name was on those pieces of property. He had to declare them. He broke the law. And this was all investigated by the Garda National Economic Crime Unit. It was a slightly unusual investigation. I, I don't recall a case like this, Caroline. We don't have a good track record in investigating white collar crime. And where we do, it's generally to do with fraud or to do with tax evasion. These kind of technical issues of governance, how you, uh, when you are in a a public position of a public appointment, how you govern and how you are governed in that position, it's quite technical. We tend to think that it's a bit of a box ticking exercise. This is a change of strategy in terms of the investigation. And it definitely indicates a change of attitude in terms of the judiciary because he was given a two-month jail sentence. And whatever about being slow to prosecute people for white-collar crime, being slow to, to convict them of it, we certainly don't jail people. We've jailed people in the past where there's been maybe, you know, very obvious tax evasion and or fraud and there's large sums of money involved. It was actually accepted in this case that he didn't actually benefit financially from anything he did here. So there was quite a strong move by a judge to actually convict and jail. I think a lot of the expectations were that he might get a custodial sentence, but that it would be suspended, as often happens, is suspended for a period, presuming you're of good behaviour during that time. But to actually say two months in jail, he could have given six months, but two months in jail is is a very strong signal. He hasn't actually gone to jail yet. He has not gone to jail and all indications are he'll actually appeal the severity. He won't appeal the conviction because he did plead guilty to it, um, but the severity of the conviction. Um, um, so that will be interesting um, because he would only, if he did, went to jail for the two months, he would probably serve about six weeks because there's a standard 25% remission for anyone of good behaviour in prison. Six weeks for a person who used to work at an office and sit at a desk and make decisions. It's still a very large, uh, a boulder sort of rolling over you in terms of your professional and personal life and your expectations of how they would turn out. So I think a lot of people would expect that he would appeal it. How he'll get on, we're not sure. You mentioned that he was a Fine Gael appointee uh, at the start of all this. We know also he was a, a good friend of the Enterprise Minister, former Tónaiste Simon Coveney. Has this rocked the political system, if you like? Or, or what has been the, the reaction, the fallout from this? And in fact, how did he know Simon Coveney in the first place? They went to school together. They went to school, Presentation Brothers College in Cork, um, and they also had a shared passion for for sailing. So they're both in yacht clubs. They actually had a a shared interest in a yacht at one stage, and it was Simon Coveney who would have appointed him to the um, Marine Institute in 2012. So, and there were family connections even before Paul Hyde, his father was a donor to, to Fine Gael as well. So... Actually, there's been very little sort of a light shone on those relationships. And maybe we've become weary of that because these positions are political appointments. Um, there's almost an expectation that if you work in certain professional areas or circles and certain commercial areas, you're going to know politicians. Um, so, I, you know, there's been very little scrutiny of that. I, I'm not sure that uh, Simon Coveney has been asked outright what he thinks. He's not likely to say anything until this is completely... Um, 
cleared and, and finished with in terms of the um, the criminal prosecutions. But um, there's possibly, possibly questions to be asked there. How, is it, how does a, a friendship turn into a qualification for appointment to a public board? But then I do go back and say he was very well educated and he had the foresight to get this uh, qualification in marine spatial planning. And there's very few in the country have that and we do need them. There's a shortage right now in on board Planola, ironically. And he obviously is gone from the board of on board Planola now. But that board itself has been pretty shaken up in the last few years by various allegations and, and a number of members have walked away as well. That's right. It is, uh, it's a very under-resourced, disorganised kind of a body that has taken on a hugely expanded role. All sorts of new regulations, legislation, types of development have been kind of thrown in there and the body and the regulations didn't change really to... to, to um, accommodate that. And in the last few years, the number of board members was allowed to fall to, to dwindle. Um, so they actually ended up with like about half the number of board members as technically they were allowed to have. And these are the board members making decisions. So they were making decisions at a rapid rate, uh, sometimes on very technical um, cases. They do get a, a, an inspector's report, which goes into all the pros and cons and technical issues in detail and a recommendation. They were sometimes overturning or rejecting that recommendation without any clear indication of why. So there's, there have been a lot of issues there that have come up since these revelations last year. There's been uh, about six different investigations, internal, external. We've only had the reports on some of them. But quite apart from Paul Hyde and the members of the board, we have found that all sorts of sort of structural and procedural deficiencies within the board, lack of paper trails, we don't know how decisions were made, lack of signatures, we don't know who made the decisions. We we know that they played sort of fast and loose with the quorum rules so that no case was ever supposed to be decided by uh, fewer than three members of the board, except in very tiny cases, in very special circumstances. Oftentimes, two people were making decisions. So we know all of that. We know that they didn't have legal advice in the room with them when they were making decisions, um, that they hired in uh, lawyers who were there sometimes and not there other times. They didn't have someone with them the whole time. And Caroline, you were forgive me for saying it, I know you're a little bit nerdy when it comes to this sort of stuff. You follow it, you study it. Like, what are the real world implications of those problems that you're telling telling me about? This planning body can make a decision that can fundamentally change the character and shape of a village, a town, a neighbourhood. So what they do is extraordinarily important. Where they put infrastructure or don't, what kind of housing they allow or don't, the kind of costs that they impose on the rest of us, the strategic housing developments, um, that new model of development of fast-tracking housing developments or apartment developments of 100 units or more, that came into Onboard Planola's remit and in 2017. And Paul Hyde was put in charge of that and he was very much pro that kind of development, get it through, get it, get it through fast. That ended up in so many legal challenges and they, the cost in terms of just the financial cost, in terms of legal fees, the cost in terms of us not getting uh, houses built or apartments built and in terms of housing being built that has, has created um, and apartments being built that have created just bad relations with surrounding communities, which is not a long-term good way to be because we're trying to build communities where everybody's integrated and everybody works well together. All of that, um, those are real-world implications. If you don't get it right, if you don't, you can argue, and it was argued, that some of the um, objections that were brought to court were on minor um, environmental grounds, European directives and so on. But those are the law. 
They're not minor technicalities. Those are the law. These are professional planners. They're supposed to know the law. They're supposed to apply it. They're supposed to interrogate those aspects of the law before they make a decision on a case. And if they don't, that case is going to end up in the High Court where cases get dragged out and, and costs rise and tempers f- um, get um, get frayed. And we end up with a situation where there's a planning system that just doesn't seem fit for purpose. Now, this is not just about housing. Obviously, it's about all types of infrastructure, but we are talking about this in the context of a massive and seemingly never-ending housing crisis. What is Dara O'Brien, the housing minister, who ultimately the book stops with when it comes to onboard Panala? He's also in charge of local government. What is he doing about all this mess? New rules, new regulations, new law, all on the way. Not finalised yet, but a few changes have come into effect. There's new definitions. Believe it or not, even though it was a it was a code of conduct that as a member of the board, you shouldn't make a decision on a case that was within your immediate area, your immediate neighbourhood. There was no definition of what your immediate neighbourhood was. How did that get through the law? We don't know. Even issues like that, um, just to, just so that there's, again, there's clarity. There's an attempt to not just rename it um, uh, uh, on board Planola to, mm, I'm going to get this wrong, but it's a commission, uh, the entire title, but to actually use a kind of commission um, style structure where there's greater separation of the commissioners who make the decisions um, and the full-time permanent staff who advise on those decisions and just a clearer cut because, again, it was felt that the board had undue influence not just on decisions and cases, but on the people making them. So there's a lot of kind of internal governance stuff that's happening, uh, but it's happening, unfortunately, at the same time that the board is full of... The, the board is now all temporary members. They're seconded. They have all important jobs. When you look at some of their... Um, their CVs, they've come from really important jobs within the rest of the public sector. Um, uh, so the idea is that there will be a new way of appointing board members um, going forward. Uh, that has to happen very quickly because some of these board members are already several months into what is it to be a temporary one-year one term. We had a, an interim chairperson who was supposed to be there from January to December and she's leaving next month. Um, she's taking up a new position within the Department of Environment. So are we going to have a second interim chairperson or will they manage to get a full-time person in in the meantime, we don't know. So, and you mentioned the housing crisis. There's also a housing and building boom. So there's a huge number of cases coming through on board Panola. There's a backlog building up. There's an expertise deficit and there's new areas that have to move into. The first of the big offshore wind farms will be coming uh, before the board by the end of the year and they're colossal. And all of that, I mean, it's the classic answer, Caroline. Change the name and rebrand um, and and it'll come out in time how much we're going to spend on the rebrand. The public perception of planning in this country going back decades, I think it's fair to say, is appalling. And we see stories and they're isolated maybe in that they're one-off things. Like I spoke recently on the podcast with Fionan Sheehan about the story he had on the go-away money that a group of people in South Dublin were looking for from a developer in order not to object. We've seen other kind of isolated controversies but is there anything that can be done to change that public perception or is that just the way it's got to be when it comes to planning? 
This goes back a long time. You go back to the early and mid-90s. We had a planning tribunal that ran for over a decade on the very issues of transparency and propriety and undue influence and in planning decisions. Um, and if anything was learned from that, it was that there needed to be, everything needed to be transparent, everything needed to function, everybody needed to be clear on what their rights and responsibilities were. And now here we are on, that was 1997 that started and here we are sort of 25 years later and we're looking at not only this issue, but as you rightly mentioned, mentioned there. The Irish Independent has reported on this kind of go-away money uh, thing that seems to be uh, reasonably common or at least common enough to give concern, whereby um, communities, neighbourhoods, residents groups, you know, don't feel they'll get a good enough hearing in the planning system. So they're doing deals on the side with developers to go away. We won't put in our objections or even our observations because they're not always objections. Sometimes they're actually very sensible observations and how you might tweak a plan. Give us money and we'll go away and we'll leave you to go through the planning system. You know, some people might say, well, that's private individuals arguing with private developers. Let them at it. It does show that there's a weakness in the planning system if those kind of deals are going on outside of the planning system. There's a problem with the planning system. Caroline O'Doherty, thank you very much. My thanks to Caroline O'Doherty. I'm Kevin Doyle, and today's episode was produced by Tabitha Monaghan, researched by Saoirse Mulgrew, with sound by Niall McMonagall. Archive clips were from RTE and Independent.ie, Virgin Media News on Virgin Media One. If you enjoy the Indo Daily, don't forget to like, follow, and leave us a review.